Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And guess what? This is episode 100. Yep, 100 episodes, over three years of podcasting. I gotta say, I wasn't quite sure that I'd get this far when I started this podcast back in 2013, but... Here we are, and man, if you've been listening since the start, or if you've been listening for any amount of time, seriously, thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you found the show valuable as it's continued to change and evolve over the years, and I'm really excited to see where it goes in the future. But for this particular episode, I wanted to bring someone back who has been really influential in my life, and uh, that person is Cal Newport. Now, I had Cal on the show back in episode 35, and on that episode, we talked about this idea that uh, trying to, quote-unquote, find your passion is not really good advice, and instead, you should focus on building skills and acquiring what he calls career capital, and that'll help you on your quest to find work that fulfills you. And that conversation was based Based on his book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which has been on my list of essential books for students ever since I read it. And uh, actually, in January of this year, Cal published a new book called Deep Work Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And this book is all about cultivating an ability to work in a focused manner and not get distracted, to really immerse yourself in one task at a time. And since I'm getting questions all the time about how to focus more effectively and how to cut down distractions in your work, I thought this be a really valuable episode for you guys. So we're going to dig into some of his arguments for why cultivating the ability to work deeply is so important and will become more important in the future. And then we're going to get into how you can start to build this attention muscle in your brain. So show notes are going to be over at CIGpodcast.com. As always, click the episode 100 link on the page to get links to all the things we talk about, links to the book if you would like to check it out, and also links to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, which really helps the show out. So if you want to do that, I definitely appreciate it. That is it for this intro, so let's dive right into this episode with Cal. Hey, Cal, welcome back to the show, man. Hi, Thomas. So glad to have you back on the show. This is episode 100, and I thought it'd be awesome to have you back on the show for the centennial of the episode. Uh, And you've got a new book out called Deep Work, which you've been writing about deep work for, for a few years now, right? Like probably four or five years, actually. It's something like that. Yeah, I think 2000... 12 or something I first started really talking about it yeah it seems like that was kind of the where the focus of study hack started shifting to from just general college to all right let's talk about how to work in a more focused uh, attentive manner right yeah it did well it shifted from from college to college plus the career questions from you know the last time I was on here and then from the career questions to the work questions which but by the way just follows my own path. You know, when I was a graduate student, I was writing about student stuff. When I was on the job market, I was writing about how do you choose a job? And then once I had a job, I shifted to writing about how do you do the job well? So it 
you know, give me another 40 years and study hacks will be talking about how to retire well, I suppose. Here's how to join AARP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, how to get the most social security benefits. <laughs> Actually, I saw a book on the shelf. Like, I think it was literally called that, like how to get the most social security benefits or something. It's complicated, but it turns out, so I've heard, it's complicated. There's a there's a blog in there that could be successful. Really? I'm, I'm just kind of assuming I'll never get social security benefits. <laughs> that, that's a shorter book. Yeah. How to get the most. Don't worry about it. You won't get any. That's yep. the, the whole book. Yeah. Just invest and hope you save enough. Yep. Um, so did you find that deep work became more important when you became a professor or when you started getting higher up in education? Or has this always been a important topic for you? Well, it's always an important topic. I think I, I began to crystallize my understanding. So just to put some definitions behind the terms, uh, deep work is my term for the activity where you focus for a long time without any distraction mm. uh, on a cognitively demanding task. So th- to be doing deep work means that you're, you're giving the task at hand attention for well over an hour. And when I say no distraction, I mean no glances, right? No just checks. No, okay. like, well, let me just check this real briefly because as, as we can discuss, that, that craters your cognitive capacity. And mm. you know, the argument I'm making is that this skill, this ability to really focus really intensely for a long amount of time is incredibly valuable. It's, it's like a, a superpower if you develop it and can do it well in terms of how much you produce and how quickly you produce. And this is true for certainly for students and true for almost any knowledge worker. Mm. Uh, the economist writing about it even said, I think their term was deep work is the killer app of the knowledge economy. So I'm sort of out there proselytizing that uh, people are for losing the skill, but if you actually cultivate it, it's like one of the most valuable things that you can add to your to your productivity toolkit is the ability to focus intensely on something undistracted for a long amount of time. So that is like the, the secret sauce for knowledge-based tasks. Yeah, so because it's over an hour, do you consider like a Pomodoro session to be deep work or do you really need to get in and do like a long time's worth? Well, so you can structure within a deep work session, you might have Pomodoro style blocks. Like I do 15 minutes, let me take... 10 minutes to let my mind rest a little bit, then attack it again for 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. But the, the key thing is when you're stringing those together is that uh, you're, you're trying to avoid what we call attention residue. So you're, you're trying to avoid switching your attention briefly to something unrelated and then come back to it. Okay. That's going to crater your productivity for up to 30 minutes afterwards. So you can do 50 minutes, then take 10 minutes where you're just giving your mind a breather. Mm-hmm. But if you check Facebook, if you check your inbox, if you uh, do a quick glance at the web in that 10 minute break, you're going to really create your performance going forward. So when you're doing a big deep work block, it's we're talking you've gone hours without seeing something related to the internet. Really? Okay. So you're even when you're so there's a cognitive switching task basically, even if you're losing some efficiency and taking a break. Um so what do you do if like say you've worked for 50 minutes and you just you've gotten really tired, mentally exhausted, and you need to take a break? Do you just go for a walk or stare yeah. at a wall? Yeah, you walk around, go get a drink of water, you know, uh, walk, whatever it is that you're giving your mind a break, but you're not ending the session. Okay. Yeah. And this is what, I mean, I can tell you the people who develop the deep work ability, and I want to emphasize that uh, deep work is misunderstood by a lot of people who think about it as a habit, like flossing, Mm. something they know how to do. And it's just a matter of, oh, I should do that more. This is how a lot of people think about deep work. Like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm distracted too much. Like, I really should, like, do some more concentrated work more often. But right. the reality is it's a it's a skill like playing the guitar, something that if you don't really practice and hone your ability uh, to do, you're not going to be very good at it. 
And so if you haven't really been systematically training your uh, ability to concentrate intensely, if you haven't been training that, and then you try to set aside some time and say, I'm going to do some Pomodoros and focus really hard, uh, it's going to be not that productive. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be mentally uncomfortable. You're not actually going to get much done. Uh, that shouldn't discourage you. A lot of times I'll just discourage people. They'll say, I'm not a deep worker. But the reality mm -hmm. is you just haven't practiced a skill yet. Just like if you picked up a guitar for the first time in your life and tried to play and it sounded horrible, you wouldn't say, well, I'm just not a guitar person. This doesn't sound like what I hear on the radio. You would say, oh, I haven't been practicing it. So a lot of what I'm trying to promote is this notion that this is a, a very valuable skill. If you can train your mind to focus very intensely for a long amount of time, you can have massive, massive increases to your productivity. But it's a non-trivial thing to undertake. Uh, you're really going to have to do some training. And you're probably going to have to make some relatively major changes to your lifestyle if you're going to support it. So I push this idea that a deep life is a good life. It's satisfying. It's more successful. But that it does re require some some pretty big commitments and drastic changes. So it's like the ability to focus your attention on one thing at a time isn't just this thing that's universally difficult for everyone to get into. And just some people don't have the discipline. It's actually a skill. Yeah, you have to train your mind mm. to concentrate like you would train a muscle to be able to do a pull-up. And in order to, to reach the levels of concentration that really unlocks the massive productivity benefits of deep work, that itself takes some training, right? You really have to get your mind used to focusing on one thing. You have to get it used to resisting distraction. You have to get it uh, used to holding stable things in the working memory while diving deeper. Mm -hmm. It's just very much a trained art. Uh, but once you really learn how to concentrate intensely, it's a completely different experience than what most people think of when they think of doing work. Okay. So when you think of training your mind to do this, is the best way to do it simply to just do your work and try to focus? Or are there other maybe just tangentially related exercises you can do to hone your ability? Well, there's two types of training that mm -hmm. are relevant for deep work. So, uh, the verse type is actually uh, reducing or minimizing your addiction to novel stimuli. Okay. It's as I sort of summarized by saying embrace boredom. But if your mind has been trained that at the slightest hint of boredom, it will get exposed to novel, interesting, personalized information, such as let's look at a face our Facebook wall or let's look at a, our Twitter account or let's look at the web real quick. Mm. It's not going to be able to concentrate when it comes time to work hard. Because it, it's been used to, it's been trained. Hey, this is boring. Deep work is boring in the sense that there's not a lot of novel stimuli. You're focusing on the same thing for a long amount of time. Your mind is not going to be able to, to fall into to, uh, intense concentration right. if it's addicted to stimuli. So part of the training is actually reducing your dependence on novel stimuli. The second type of training is actually deepening your ability to concentrate harder and harder. And so this is where you're, it's a positive training where you're actually trying to push your mind like you would push a muscle to be able to, to concentrate deeper and deeper. And there's certain exercises that help there. So you have negative and positive training. On the negative side, you have to start weaning yourself off of this life of constant distraction. And on the positive side, you start pushing your brain's concentration ability past where you're comfortable again and again so that it stretches and grows over time. Okay. So let's dive into the negative side first. Um, I think I'm pretty good at avoiding these novel distractions when I'm working I try to close my tabs and everything. But I know like if I'm in the line at the bank or something, I will immediately pull my phone out and just I have like this little ritual, Instagram and then Twitter. And then I don't have Facebook on my phone. But um, so you're saying like to cultivate this, I should basically just stand in line and stare at the wall and yeah. resist pulling my phone out and be bored. You'd be bored. I, the, okay. 
a useful way to think about it is when you're at home, for example, you, you say, okay, I'm home. I'm done with work. Mm-hmm. All right. What am I going to do tonight? Say, here is the time or times in my evening when I'm going to use the internet. All right. I'm going to, from, from seven to eight, I'm going to go nuts and okay. I'm going to check all my Instagram, my Facebook. I'm just going to web surf, whatever. And maybe again at like nine 30 to 10, I'll do it. Every other time throughout the evening, you say, Hey, I just am not using the internet. If I'm bored, I'm bored. If I have to wait in line during that period, then I'm just going to have to think about something in line. If I'm watching a TV show and it's a little bit boring or there's a commercial, I can't look at a tablet. I just have to, okay, it's a little bit boring. You know, maybe I'll go read a book. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea is not to eliminate use of the internet or internet tools. The ability is to give your mind, the, the idea is to give your mind lots of practice, wanting to have a quick novel uh, stimuli and being denied it. And that's what strengthens the ability of your mind to to be able to resist distraction uh, when it's important. So it's not that I don't want to use the internet at night, but it's I want to have these long periods where I don't use it. That's the cognitive training because during those periods, you might be like, oh, I'm bored. I really want to just glance at ESPN.com on my tablet. You're like, ah, <laughs> my the time I set aside for doing that's not for another hour. That whole hour of you wanting to do it and not doing it, that's what's actually strengthening your mind's ability to resist distraction. And I suggest the same thing during work. You have a tablet next to your computer. You just have written down at any given point, what's the next time I'm going to look at anything on the internet? Mm. And if you have a job or work that requires a lot of internet use, and that time might always be relatively soon in the future. It could be every 15 minutes. But it still gives you plenty of times during the day where – in the moment, you're a little bit bored and want to jump onto the computer and you say, look, it's written right down here that I don't get to do that for another 10 minutes. And you get 10 minutes of that sort of cognitive practice. So uh, the way I talk about it is instead of doing what most people do, which is schedule the occasional times to focus, I suggest you do the opposite and you schedule when you're going to be distracted. Okay. And the rest of your time, the default is that you're not giving into those distractions. Uh, that really does wean you off of this this. Uh, dependence, mm-hmm. which really is necessary if, and again, only if you're interested in uh, getting the most out of your brain, doing cognitive work at a high level, trying to leverage deep work. It's not for everyone. It's not for every job. But if you're interested in this deep lifestyle I'm advocating, I think that's a really important foundation. Okay. So when people ask me about, you know, how do I stop being distracted on the internet so much? Um, usually what I tell them is the first thing you want to do is lock down your familiar haunts. So block access to the sites that you typically do go to like Reddit or Facebook or YouTube, that kind of thing. Um, have you, do you read uh, XKCD at all? Yeah, sometimes. So the guy who writes XKCD, Randall Monroe, he wrote a blog post a few years ago about his method for getting rid of distractions on the internet. And it was kind of extreme. Basically, if he wanted to switch tasks at all, or the moment he'd get done with any task, he has to turn the computer off and back on before doing the next thing. So if I want to go to Facebook, I have to turn the computer fully off and then back on before I go to Facebook. And then I'd have to reboot again to go back to my task. And he said that completely got rid of the, uh, the desire to be distracted because it added some, I don't know, some resistance. What I'm curious about is, is this a good tactic or should you leave those avenues open to, I guess, make it more difficult for your brain to resist it and thus, uh, increase your brain's ability to resist it more? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, and I think the division the here is between what and how. Mm-hmm. So the what in this case is you pre-plan when you use the internet, which gives you plenty of experience uh, in between wanting to use the internet and you don't. And then there's the question of the how. How do you actually implement that plan? And t- 
to me, if at first you're having a very difficult time following your own plan, then I think having these sort of digital resistance tools is a great way to start that habit and to initiate that habit. Mm -hmm. And then over time, as your brain gets a little bit used to, okay, I can actually survive for an hour without you know looking at this stuff. It gets a little bit used to it. It gets uh, acclimatized. Then as you suggest, you try to remove those resistances from uh, your life so that your brain can actually do more of that work itself. And and, and therefore you get even stronger training. So if, if you're really uh, addicted to this stuff, you're just new to attention training, the what is to have these schedules. And I think having tools like freedom to lock down the distractions to help you uh, succeed with that plan is a great way to start. And I think the idea that you want to eventually not need those things mm-hmm. uh, should be the goal that you should be able to eventually follow these schedules you create uh, comfortably without without having to have you know someone else forcing you not to use these. So it's like an entry level. It's like an entryway, like a nicotine patch when you're first starting to quit smoking. Gotcha. Okay. So freedom, focal filter, tools like that, they're basically training wheels. They're training wheels. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll say this is, especially for a, a younger audience, this suggestion might be more um, provocative. Um, but I think if you... If you want to take your attention seriously uh, as one of your main tools as a student or knowledge worker, that you have to be very wary about what you let into your life that has command over your time and attention. And that something you have to consider is being much more selective about use of tools Mm. that are designed to grab your attention. So, for example, I've never had a social media account. At all? Like of any kind? At all. Of any kind. I've never had one. I've never had a Facebook account. I've never had a Twitter account. Uh, what are they? I don't even know. Instagram, I guess, is something now. I've never had any of these accounts, partially because I take my my attention real seriously. And mm-hmm. these tools uh, are designed by companies that hire people who they pay a lot of money to figure out how can I grab more of uh, our product's attention. Right. And I use the word you know product there meaningfully because of course you are you are the product if you're using these services. You're being sold to advertisers. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me scared. It scares me. Just like if I was an athlete, I would be very scary, scared of you know these junk foods that are engineered to be so palatable that once you start <laughs> eating a bag of it, you have to eat the whole bag of Doritos. Yeah, I make a living with my mind. Uh, so to me, these social media tools, which are designed to distract you and prevent you from concentrating, is, is a cognitive junk food. Um, so I've never oh. had a social media account, and it turns out nothing bad happens. I. I have friends. I know what's going on in the world. I'm still able to sell books. Uh, there's a lot of these claims that you can't exist in the world without these accounts. Mm-hmm. So my argument is for for those out there who are thinking seriously about taking their brain more seriously, um, consider quitting these tools that are grabbing so much of your time and making it hard to concentrate. And I, I mean, I can tell you from experience, nothing bad happens. Interesting. I never thought happens. about it as cognitive junk food, but that, that does make a lot of sense, the argument that your mind is what makes your living when you're doing knowledge work. Yeah. I mean, I I had this discussion on a radio interview not too long ago where we were talking about some of these advanced tools to carefully limit the amount of time that you use on Facebook or some of these other tools. And and we we realized it's almost like if the the junk food companies, you know, were invented, they were trying to sell you these complicated lock boxes that you'd put the potato chips in and they had timers and it would just dispense a certain number <laughs> of potato chips and it would make sure you couldn't eat too many potato chips and and eventually you would just say well, why don't I just not eat potato chips right like why am I why am I going through so much trouble let's just go back to the fundamental premise like the potato chips are just bad for me and I don't really get enough enjoyment out of them it's easier just to say I don't eat potato chips and 
And that's a lot of the way I think about social media. Um, and I, there, there's other thinkers who think the same way. It's not that, that we feel that we're above it. It's that we don't trust ourselves. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I was reading an article a little while ago. It's called The Web's Grain. And it's a bit about just web design in general. But he was kind of talking about that same idea where I'm on my couch. I have Netflix. I have all these you know tablets in front of me. And everyone's solution for focusing your attention and you know getting rid of all these distractions is more little settings in the apps and, and more little buttons and more little controls. And that's kind of the wrong way to look at it. Instead, you just want to cut things out. Yeah, you don't look to the junk food or fast food companies for diet advice. You just stop <laughs> eating their food. And now, of course, they would like you to because McDonald's would love you to instead like keep coming there and they maybe and, and use the some McDonald's diet to make sure that you're balancing the healthy with the unhealthy McDonald's <laughs> food. It's just easier not to go to McDonald's. Eat our salads for breakfast. Yeah, it's just easier to say, I don't know. I just don't go to McDonald's that easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I think that's that's a point of view that's not being said uh, enough. And, and it's, you know, it's not for everyone. And for some people, social media plays a very important role, but there should just mm. be a lot more skepticism because, you know, again, these are just companies based out of California that are selling your attention to advertisers and they're doing whatever they can to keep your attention. And they do a really good job of marketing and they, they somehow convince you that, no, no, this isn't just an ad network that you're participating in for free. It's, uh, it's at the core of society. Or it's what it means yeah. to be, you know, you're going to miss out if you're not on here. And they've done this great job of making it seem like, well, especially if you're young, you have to be using these services. That's what it means to be a part of society. But, you know, it, mm-hmm. it turns out nothing bad happens. And, I, you know, one of the things I, I want to mention about this is that uh, when you build your life more around deep work, so you really prioritize focusing really hard on things to produce a lot of value and minimizing a lot of the other things in your life. One of the benefits you get is an overall reduction in just sort of the background hum of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And from what I found working on this book and working with people is that we forget because it's like the fish not knowing they're in water. A lot of people don't realize that the the constant jumping back and forth between all these different information sources all the time creates this background hum of anxiety in your life that's very uncomfortable. Um, but you don't even know what it feels like not to have that anxiety because it's just what you do all the time. And that one of the big things people notice when they make the jump to the deep work lifestyle, where they 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 get away from social media, they don't really web surf that much. They spend they don't they're bad at email. They spend a lot more time working hard on really valuable things. Is that that background hum of anxiety dies away, mm. and it's not that it's only then that they realize, man, this stuff was making me miserable. I didn't realize like it was making me feel bad, like all the the jumping around. It was just messing up the chemicals in my brain. I was always just feeling this low level sort of on edge anxiety kind of in the background. You don't realize it's there until you actually get away from it. So there there's deep non-professional benefits towards moving your life towards more deep things in an increasingly shallow world. Yeah. Sometimes um sometimes I envy this picture in my head of the guy who lives a simple life working, you know, a job for someone else. And I know this isn't a real picture, um, but I have like this fantasy picture of like, oh, I could just go to a job one day, come home. And when I get home, my brain will turn off and I won't have to think about my stuff because what my life is like now is I'm almost constantly thinking about work or something. Even at night, uh, there's many nights where I'm like, oh, I should probably stay up and finish clearing my inbox and stuff like that. And uh, I get that anxiety. 
Uh, I think yeah. you've kind of put it into words for me there. Well, you have more control over that than you might than you might expect because mm-hmm. a lot of this behavior is driven by sort of convention and society. But just to give you an example, I was doing a a, a podcast interview with with someone who has a similar business in the sense that they run a large website and have a podcast, and you know this is their job is they run this large media website and and do podcast and and blog posts. And we were talking about you know some of those anxieties he had, and you know one of the things he did, which I found was great, is at some point he said, you know what, we just don't have an email address anymore. And they got the they got rid of the email address and said, if you want to contact me, here's our here's our PO box. Really, and it, it took out a massive amount of time and stress from his life. Mm-hmm. Not having there's no inbox filling with messages from all of their readers, and nothing happened to the business. Right? They, they didn't lose readership. They didn't they didn't lose listeners. They didn't lose any money. It, it was not vital to the business that you know he was accessible by email all the time. Uh, so he got huge benefits in his life and no major no major negatives. And I. I I love that example because it emphasized how much of this uh, anxiety and stress we have in a digital distracted age is self-imposed and unnecessary. I mean, if you said, if you said, I, I, you know, I just don't have an email address anymore that like in general that people can contact me and I'm not on social media anymore. And I'm really just doubling down on, on my content's going to be great. My videos are going to be great. And, you know, you would probably find that your, your time would open up a lot more, that your stress anxiety would go down, the quality of what you're producing would go up and there'd be no negative impacts. But we just have this convention of no connectivity is better than less connectivity. Uh, being accessible is better than not being accessible. Being on different platforms minimizes the chance of you missing out on some opportunities, so it's worth it. And that we don't necessarily weigh that against the downsides to our ability to produce things that matter and the stress and anxiety it produces. Yeah, man. As uh, you know, as like the YouTube channel has grown and everything, I've been unable to answer questions from people. They just they come in too fast now. And there's like this constant guilt about that. I had the but same I mean, thing. Yeah, you don't the, have an email. I, you don't have a Facebook. I used name. to answer lots when I was student facing. Mm-hmm. I saw that as like an um, an important part of what I was doing. In fact, it was meaningful to me is that I would answer students' questions, um, and I was I liked doing it. I was able to help individual people. But as the the site grew, it just became impossible. the The, the number of questions coming in became became too large. And at some point I had to make the shift to saying, I don't have an email address. I just have a, an inbound opportunity address where you can, you can send inbound an interesting opportunity, but it's not a, it's not my name. It's not, you shouldn't expect a response. And it was hard at first. Oh. I felt guilty about it, but I think ultimately um, not only did it clear up more time for me and, and lower my anxiety of having that inbox, I think I'm, I'm able to help more people because I could put my time and energy into actually producing better content, which is read by hundreds of thousands of people as opposed to the hundreds of people who might get an individual response from me. Yeah. So I feel your pain. And I went through the same transition a few years ago. Uh, But there's this expectation out there that like, hey, you have a media company. Of course, you have to be on Facebook. Of course, you have to be on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to be on Instagram. But then you push back and say, but is that, do I really? And is there a better reason other than you can come up with some scenario where you might meet someone on there, there's some interesting opportunity. It all gets kind of tangential. Once you actually push uh, the advocates of these services hard. Well, well, what are the big things I'm going to get from spending a lot of time and attention on this? They start to become sort of tangential and serendipitous. Like, well, you never know. Like, uh, it might help things spread. <laughs> or I don't know. What if you you meet someone that gives you a good opportunity, and 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 suddenly these things that you felt were completely necessary 
seem a little bit arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Really? That's it? <laughs> that like maybe it like helps people see my article a little bit quicker. Or I might meet someone that has an interesting opportunity. That doesn't really seem like it's all that exciting. Yeah. And you, so you call this the uh, any benefit approach, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the current strategy most people use to, to decide whether or not to use a digital tool is, does this provide any plausible benefit or is there any plausible valuable thing I might miss out if I don't use it? And if the answer is yes to either question, then people will, will adopt the tool. Yeah, I think I have been very guilty of that. And it's it's funny, like I consider myself somebody who thinks about focus a lot, but still it's like, oh, you know, while I'm writing my standard operating procedures for videos, like it only takes a couple minutes to go post a video on Facebook and post a video on Twitter and why not throw it on Tumblr as well and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I never thought about the, I just never deliberately thought about, I suppose, the impact yeah, so, so the the alternate approach is the craftsman style approach to selecting tools, um, which is where you're very clear about uh, what it is you're trying to accomplish professionally. What are the most important things in your life, personally and professionally? Mm-hmm. And you only adopt a tool if it its positive impact on those things significantly outweighs its negative impact. So it's a, it's a very different standard than is there some benefit? Instead, the standard is, does this give me a substantial benefit for the three or four things I think are most important uh, in my professional life? And by that standard, for some people, some of these tools pass. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, the tools don't. The fact that like, well, it might be a little bit beneficial uh, if I send this stuff out on Twitter because maybe it makes it easier to spread. If your most important thing is I want to produce like the very best possible videos and, and these type of things that that doesn't positively affect it enough. So you say, yeah, it's fine, but that's not, that's not a big enough, that's not a big enough benefit for it to, to get uh, credit or get its claws in my time and attention. Mm-hmm. And that's of course how craftsmen in other fields think about tool selection. And, you know, I spent time in the book talking to a farmer and we had this conversation. I said, how do you decide what tools to buy for your farm? And, and, you know, we were talking about how in that context, the any benefit approach doesn't make any sense because every tool in the farm supply store has some benefit. Right. There's no tool in the farm the supply store where they say, we have no idea why this would be useful, but you should probably buy it because you never know. <laughs> they, they all have some benefit, but they all have some downsides. They cost money. They require time. Uh, he was talking about if he uses a hay baler, he can save money on buying hay, but it compacts his, his soil. So they have mm. to go through really complicated thinking to say, yeah, but is this going to have substantially more positive than negative benefits? And that's how they decide whether or not to use a tool. You know, right now we treat digital tools not that way. We just say, oh, there's some benefit. Yeah, I'll use it. My time's not worth anything. My attention's not worth anything. I didn't have to pay money, so I guess it's fine. Why not use it? Uh, and it's it, it's sort of a nonsensical strategy. Yeah. You would never buy something from the hardware store if they said, hey, I don't know why this is useful, but you know, your friends are using it and maybe you'll, maybe you'll, you'll stumble across something that's useful. Come buy this widget. You say, no, I'm not going to buy this thing. But that's essentially what happens when, you know, hundreds of millions of people sign up for Snapchat before anyone can tell them exactly what they're supposed to use it for. Yeah. And we've got, you know, people like Gary Vaynerchuk, who I like a lot saying like, you need to be on Snapchat. You need to be on Twitter, you know? And it's like, I guess there's all these gurus and all these people who are very successful saying this is the way. And it's so easy to accept that point blank. Yeah. And, and in Gary's defense, if you're running a company right now, mm-hmm. well, the fact that everyone is using social media is to your advantage as a company Yeah, because it, it does make it easier for you to spread the word. Um, but if you're one of the consumers of social media, that's where that's where, where the issue is. So, yeah, Gary's very successful because uh, he's rightly noting and telling, you know, 
large organizations, everyone are using these these technologies. So that's great for you trying to sell something because if they like what you're doing, it'll spread much faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's great for companies, social media, but uh, it's not necessarily so great for the users. Yeah. So I want to go back to the inbox thing for a second because I think you may have solved my problem <laughs> um, with it with your your bit about having the inbound email address that has no expectation of a reply whatsoever. Yeah, because I always just had a normal email address or a contact form as well. And when I started my blog, it was like I'll get back to you, and then eventually I removed that. And I've gotten to this point now where I set up a subreddit for my site so other people can answer student questions as well as me. Uh, It takes a little bit of the expectation of me replying off of it. But I had never thought about this um, inbound address. In fact, when I was in Colorado last week, one of my friends said the same thing to me. What if you just got rid of your contact page? What would happen? And uh, immediately I thought of, oh, well, like, you know, this person from a publication emailed me yesterday and they were like, hey, can we feature your podcast in our publication can i need to send like a lightness release form and i'm like i would have never gotten that if i didn't have an email address at all but if i had an inbound one like you do yeah it's uh for me it's it's interesting at calnewport.com and i I call it a sender filter which is you put a description above the email address um here's what this address is for and what to expect okay and for mine it says hey this is for you know opportunities that might be interesting to me you can send them here and but then i make clear um I only respond to the small number of opportunities that happen to be a good fit for my time and interest. So it's okay. this, uh, the expectation is that first of all, this is only for opportunities. So if you try to use it for other purposes, if you try to send me a really long question or something else, you're not upset when I don't get back to you because you, you saw right there, like, yeah, that's not really what this is for. So I don't really have an expectation. Right. And if you are sending an opportunity, you don't really have an expectation. You'll hear back. You're like, Hey, if he's interested, I'll hear back. And if not, I won't. It completely, I'll tell you, Thomas, it completely changes your relationship with your inbox. Because when you see your inbox filling up, you don't have this sense of stress of each one of those messages is a social obligation that I have to fulfill. Right. I didn't reply. That's such a source that used to stress me out so much as the inbox would grow. Now it's like, oh, great. Everything in there is a potential opportunity. There might be some interesting stuff in there. And you just kind of read through them real quick, right? And yeah. and most of them you just archive right away, like, yeah, it's not for enough for me. And then you, you know, hey, here's a chance to be in a magazine or something. Some cool stuff pops up and you can go on and pursue them. It completely changes your relationship uh, with with your email inbox. And I think this is how email should be used probably more generally. I think the biggest uh, unintended consequence mistake made in the early days of this technology was building email addresses uh, that were attached to individual names. Okay. So the idea that like you had an email address for you as a person. Right. That's a real source of a lot of the stress right now because I'm a big proponent in that the best way to use email is that you have email addresses that are associated with types of information and activities. Mm-hmm. So you get rid of this notion that there's just a Thomas email address. And anything can come into there and everything's treated the same. And there's an expectation that I'll get back to people about everything. And that's really stressful. It makes much more sense for like, well, there's a, for the, if you have speaking opportunities, there's a speaking address for which people can send in speaking opportunities. If, right. uh, if there's a media opportunity or media inquiries, there's like a, an address associated with media inquiries. Like there's these, these inboxes people can access for specific reasons with specific expectations. It makes a huge difference. That, so that's basically just flipping the whole idea of email on its head. And I was going to ask you, like, do you do inbox zero? What's your inbox philosophy? But it sounds like um, you're, you're on a completely different plane 
where it's there's no need for it really yeah and you know what people still and people still get upset but not as many as you would think Mm -hmm. um because there are these social conventions around email that that need to get broken down and and haven't completely so i'll still get sometimes in my my opportunities email address someone that I'm not interested in will keep sending something again and again and again. And, you know, it's like, I probably couldn't have been more clear that I only answered the ones I'm interested in. And then finally they'll send a message that says like, well, I need you to tell me yes or no on this, because otherwise, like, how am I going to know if I can cross you off my list or this or that? And I'm thinking no one has this expectation with like physical junk mail. That's like, true. <laughs> you would never get a piece of junk mail in your mailbox where there's like a postcard attached where they said, if you're not interested in this junk mail offer, please fill out this postcard and send it back so that we know that you're not interested in replacing your windows or something like that. But somehow mm-hmm. with email, because we have this, this association that no, no, it's email is attached to individuals and for you to not respond to an email is somehow rude that somehow a different standard applies. So, so having email addresses without your name on it, having descriptions of, of what the email address is for, uh, these things are important. And I think more generally what's important here is that we need to do more engineering around our attention processes if mm-hmm. we're in the knowledge work sector. That just like we put a lot of work in the productivity, you know, how do I organize my tasks? How do I time my day? If you make a living using your brain, I think people should spend a lot more time thinking about how do I make the best use of my brain? Yeah. How do I get the best thinking out of it? How do I get the most value produced per day? And this would lead to a lot of drastic changes, I think, to how people uh, encounter digital technology. Mm. So I love the idea for the email thing. I know we have a lot of students listening to this and like it would be very easy for me to set up interesting at collegeofbogey.com and I may do it. Yes. How does a student do this? Um, you know, most students, I guess they're at the stage in life where at least I, I still feel like this this gut feeling of you want to be open to any and all opportunities that come in. I guess you want to have a more open inbox when you're when you're first starting out, but maybe you disagree. I disagree. If you're a student, you are able to get away with being bad at communicating in a way that'll be harder if you're an employee in an organization. Hmm. Be bad at communicating. Be bad at email. Uh, be bad at text messaging. Get over this idea that if you're not on Facebook all the time, the scenario is always, I'm going to miss, there's going to be a party that's only talked about on Facebook Mm. And I won't know about the party if I don't see it on Facebook. Come on, this is nonsense. How often is that really? <laughs> like this, that's the scenario. That's the scenario I always get. I'm always get. You know, mm-hmm. I think students should be way, way less connected. Way less connected. Um, you should spend large portions of your day doing your work with great intensity. I'm telling you, this is the secret to very. I wrote a book about this. The very high scoring college students is they work with incredible intensity. Mm. You can cut the number of hours required to get something done by a factor of three or four. If you're working with completely undistracted intensity. So you just have large portions of your day where you just don't have your phone. You you don't need your phone. Just be Mm. away from it. Be somewhere exotic where you can focus and you can just work on your schoolwork and do it incredibly intensely and get it done very fast because you're giving it great intensity. And then when you're done, then you can take out your phone and see who texted you. But wean yourself off this distraction. You can get away with, as a student, being a bad correspondent in a way that that's going to be harder in, in a lot of jobs you might have after school. Mm-hmm. So I think being a student is a great time to sort of embrace a lifestyle that is significantly less connected. And yeah. you, just, you gotta get over this fear that somehow you're gonna lose your friends 
or miss out on this mythical party that's that's you know somehow just organized on Facebook and announced five minutes before it starts. And unless you're checking, <laughs> you miss it. You'll be okay. There'll be plenty of parties that you'll know about otherwise. Um, so embrace that time to be less connected. You know, if if you're the student who's able to concentrate intensely, I'm telling you, it makes life so much easier. You can, mm. you can get such better grades. Your study time reduces. Your anxiety is a lot lower. Uh, so yeah, I guess I would push back. So just they, reject FOMO. <laughs> essentially, reject, miss out, miss out, miss out, so that you can you can opt in to mm-hmm. you know doing stuff at a high level of quality, being more present, calming down your mind. You know, it's I think it's a better it's a better lifestyle. It, expose yourself to a lifestyle without the constant connectivity. Yeah. So do you leave your phone at home when you go out, or are there times during the day where you just don't have it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I get yelled at a lot by family members. For- <laughs> They'll say, "Hey, you didn't respond to this text." But I say, "I, I have a different convention. I don't, I don't have this notion that like a, a text message is like talk standing in the next room. Like you can expect to get my attention. Like I sometimes have my phone. I sometimes don't. Right. I'm not necessarily going to go like dive down and look and say that any text messages come in when I was away from my phone. I'm just, I'm kind of hard to reach. But it turns out it's okay. Mm. <laughs> like, you get yelled at sometimes." But nothing bad really happens in the long term. Mm. And I guess that's the point I keep going back to. Uh, if you're harder to reach, uh, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. People are okay. You'll be okay. Like things, life still goes on. Uh, you're still able to do what you need to do. This is one thing I had to talk about with my girlfriend when we were first together. Because she'd want to you know, just text all day and have a conversation. And I was just like, I, I hate texting. <laughs> I don't yeah. like moving my thumbs over the phone screen at all because they're big and unwieldy. And I would rather just have you talk to me when I see you in person. Yeah. Um, so we've gotten much better about that. She still yeah, will right, say like, exactly. didn't you see my text? No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. But see, now now, uh, now you get away with it more. So it's fine. It's mm-hmm. be a bad correspondent. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, no, I don't answer texts that well. I, I can go days without checking my email inbox. You know, yeah. I'm not on social media. It'll have a general purpose email address. But I really like my life because I spend a lot of my time able to really concentrate hard on things I think is meaningful. And that turns out to be like a pretty good way to, to build a satisfying and, and successful professional career. Right. So all these students listening to this are going to go into the working world and deal with a lot of things that either cause them to do shallow work or impede deep work. So I want to talk about like, what are some ways that we can start avoiding the shallow work we have to do in, you know, normal jobs or I guess, uh, compartmentalizing it like what are your tactics for doing that well when you're when you're new to a job the the most important thing you can start with is just drawing this distinction between deep and shallow work Mm -hmm. so that you think about the two things as being different in your mind and you understand that shallow work is what keeps you from uh, prevents you from getting fired and deep work is what's going to get you promoted so that you have the right mindset of i have to fight for deep work i have to make time for it i have to train myself to do it better and then, of course, like the shallow work, especially when you're new to a job, I got to be on top of that because if I don't, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> if, I, if I don't answer the boss's email, I'm probably going to get fired. But just having that distinction is the key at first because without that distinction, if you think all work is work, you can say, hey, I'm busy. I'm doing stuff all day long. I'm staying late. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But if all of that work is shallow work, you're really not because you're not doing the deep work that produces things of real value and moves your skills. That's the work that's going to make you better and it's going to get you promoted. So having that distinction uh, is key. 
even if at first you're pretty uncomfortable about how much small amount of deep work you're actually able to get done. At least you notice that and you're uncomfortable about it. Uh, and then it's just a matter of trying to make regular time for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm a proponent early on, for example, of scheduling out appointments for yourself on your calendar to do deep work that you treat like any other meeting or appointment on your calendar, which means if something else comes up, you say, no, no, I, I have a thing from 10 to 1, but I could okay. do that meeting or that call after or before. So you just make like it's a doctor's appointment or a meeting. You put this stuff on your calendar and just protect it. And there's social conventions surrounding appointments and meetings, so it's easy to do. Yeah. But we, we already understand if I say, hey, you know, Thomas, can you jump on a call tomorrow at noon? And if you say I have an appointment from 10 to 1, when else can we do it? That's fine. I accept that. So uh, that's an easy way to make sure that you have deep work in your schedule at first. The goal is after you get a little bit higher up, so you've developed some skills, you're producing more value for the organization, is my recommendation is that you have a conversation uh, with your supervisor, or if you work for yourself, have this conversation for yourself, where you say, what should be my ratio of deep to shallow work hours? Mm. And you come to an agreement about this. What makes sense for my job? What percentage of my time do you want to be deep work versus shallow work? And once you've figured this out with yourself or with your supervisor, you measure and you have conversations. And you might come back at first and say, we're falling way short of this ratio. So Mm -hmm. either we need to change what you think I should be doing and maybe just say that I should be doing very little deep work, or we're probably going to have to make some changes in you know the way we our, our culture runs or the way that we schedule my time um, because I'm not hitting this ratio that you wanted me to hit. And so you have that conversation over time. It, it allows you to actually shape your job in a positive way. You're not saying, get this distracting stuff off my plate. You're saying, hey, what can we do to hit this ratio we think would be the most value producing for the organization? Mm. And that's sort of the more advanced tactic because over time where that's going to lead you is uh, the changes in the culture, the way your organization runs, your team runs, or how your own company runs. It'll lead to actual changes that will also start to support deep work more. Yeah. So like different office structures, basically. Yeah. So, you know, let's say like you had this conversation with yourself and you decided that it it really should be like 60, 40 deep to shallow work Mm -hmm. because uh, deep work is what produces your best possible video and blog post. And that's what grows the company the fastest. Um, And then let's say you start measuring and realize you're only getting like five hours of deep work in in a week. Uh, You might say, okay, I still think it should be 60, 40 split. So we got to change something about the culture here at, you know, college info geek headquarters and that's where you might say okay i need to get rid of this open email address i need to spend less time on social media i need to to hire someone to do this i need to stop doing these three things because it just generates a lot of shallow work and and is taking away all my deep work time and so starting from that ratio it gives you an informed way to start making changes to your culture that you can kind of feel good about because then you see your deep work hours rise and you and it's concrete you don't feel like you're just slashing things and you don't feel like you're just on a rampage of all distraction is bad. It, it gives you a sense, you know, you can do the same thing with an organization that you start, well, maybe we shouldn't have five meetings a day, mm-hmm. five days a week, right? It will it brings to the fore what are the issues that are, that are affecting the deep to shallow work ratios. Right. So I have a, a spreadsheet just called work journal that I log into every day and I just write what I did. And I'm trying to think of ways for kind of reporting and journaling how much deep work you've done. Uh, I guess the, the initial one that came to mind was just at the end of every day, I'd have like a new column that said percentage of deep work. Um, yep. How would you do it? Well, the easiest thing you can do, especially if your work day is of a relatively fixed length, like mm-hmm. you know you work between these hours, is I just keep an index card where I just have a, a 
tally mark of deep work hours that week. So you know, if I'm if I'm doing deep work, when I finally finish a session, it's like how long was that? Three hours? I put down three tick marks. Oh, okay. And, th- and then at the end of the week, I'm like, oh, I did this many hours of deep work, and then I know roughly how many hours I work. You know, because I'm actually at at, at an office when I work, so it's pretty easy mm-hmm. uh, uh, to do the math. And so then I immediately get a sense of like I, ten hours out of forty, so I got about twenty five percent of my time was right. deep work. So it's the the minimal possible tool that still gives you the information you need. Now, in meditation, there's a principle of catching your mind being distracted and then bringing it back to whatever your focus is. And I think people are going to have this same kind of a problem with deep work. They're going to catch themselves being distracted. Um, What are your strategies for bringing yourself back? And if you do catch yourself being distracted, do you still consider that a deep work session or do you consider it like failure for that one? Um, My general rule is that you can't count. You can't count any of an hour as a deep work hour. If you switched your attention to, to something else, uh, email inbox, social media, the okay. web. So it, you have to have a pretty strict standard. What helps is to have uh, rituals and routines surrounding your deep work. Mm-hmm. So by ritual, I mean there's a, a certain pattern of behavior you do to begin a deep work block. And it might involve you go to a certain place that's different to do deep work or you do something different with the location where you normally work, where you go into deep work. Maybe you you turn off the lights except for your desk lights and mm. you put a do not disturb sign on the door. Or maybe you go, you have a different office for deep work or you go for a walk for 20 minutes before you start. So you have some rituals surrounding how you start and end deep work sessions. And then maybe you have some sort of scheduling routine. So you know when you do, you know, this is how deep work is scheduled. Uh, you know clearly when deep work is going to happen. These type of things help your mind because it puts up a really clear divide between there's our deep work time and then there's our non-deep work time. And when you have these clear rituals and routines surrounding your deep work, it's much easier just to say, okay, when I'm in one of these clear deep work sessions, I did my rituals, the time I always do deep work, it's much easier just to say the rules are the rules, there's no distraction. Okay. Then if you're just kind of going through your day and like, ah, this thing is kind of deep, I should probably like stay focused here. Like, ah, but I kind of want to check this, I'm a little bit bored. It's much harder, you're going to have much more resistance. So Mm. uh, I think routines and rituals surrounding deep work, and they can be relatively elaborate, Mm -hmm. really helps your mind say there's a difference. There's when I'm working on my craft, and then there's the time when I'm polishing my tools and sharpening my tools. And and there's there's a clear distinction, I'm at the workbench, or, you know, I'm out in front of the TV sharpening the, the chisel. It's, it's a different type of thing. And I'd imagine that when you're starting out, a really good part of one of these rituals would be setting up your workspace so it's not tempting to check something. So whether that's turning off your phone or enabling freedom or something. Yep. And doing analog work when you can, mm-hmm. you know, and if it's possible to split up a task into a big analog part where you can be out, you can be outside, you can be walking, you can be in the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I leverage all of those things. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time solving math proofs in my day job. So that's very well suited for analog mode. Do I you, spend a lot of time on foot. Do you write uh, by hand when you're writing blog posts or for deep work? Uh, I can write in my head actually, which uh, again is one of the skills you can build up if you get better at deep work. So I, I can relatively thoroughly work out the structure of a book chapter, a blog post in my head, like on foot, for example, and then come back yeah. and transcribe. Yeah. And, and it's, it's almost like transcribing. Uh, and again, this is something that was practiced. I just, yeah. I practiced doing it and I got, you know, as you get better at deep work, um, so I'm saying it can feel like a superpower. <laughs> you gain these abilities that are 
incredibly productive. That's you can you can hold a book chapter in your head and work work with it and get this the structure right and move the outline in your head. You can if you're trying to learn some complicated new concept, it seems much easier to you because mm-hmm. you can keep the pieces in your head. You're comfortable moving them around. It, it really is a lot of power you get once you start training this ability, just like you would train a muscle. I think I have some work to do. <laughs> It's, it's worth it. I'm telling you, a deep life is a good life. Oh, man. When I get an idea for a blog post and I'm kind of outlining it in my head, um, I always need to pull up my voice recorder and record stuff because I am I know I will forget certain little facts or little points I wanted to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you talk about uh, acquiring time for deep work and there's like four styles of doing it, um, like the monastic, bimodal, rhythmic, and journalistic. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's important to notice that different ways of scheduling, different routines for scheduling deep work are appropriate for different types of personalities and jobs. Mm-hmm. So there's no one size fits all. Um, so I talked about four different common routines people use, common types of routines people use for regularly scheduling deep work. So you had at one extreme is the monastic approach, which is where you just say, I don't want to do any shallow work. I just eliminate all shallow work from my life. My whole life is built around just doing deep work. Mm. This is only appropriate for a very small number of professions. Uh, professional fiction writers, for example, right. tend to be big big advocates of this. Some artists, that's kind of about it. Um, is it right, yours? So, uh, no, it's not mine. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm, a, college, I'm a college professor. I, I can't do the monastic mode. I have responsibilities. Right, yeah. I have responsibilities that uh, if I was a full-time writer, though, um, I would definitely consider it. Okay. Then you have the bimodal approach, mm-hmm. which is you're either in a mode where you're not doing deep work, so you can be very accessible, you're doing logistics, you're doing computer stuff, and then you have a mode where you are doing deep work that lasts at least a full day. So the bimodal mode people will put aside these multi-day stretches where they disappear, they fall off the grid, and they do nothing but work deeply on a small number of important things. And then they come back into the world and are very accessible again. Okay. So I talked, for example, about a college professor in the book who does this. The way he writes papers is he's normally very accessible, and then he'll disappear for three days to do nothing but get a draft of the paper done. Uh, Completely unreachable. There's an out-of-office responder on his email. It's as if he's on vacation overseas. And then he comes back, and his door is open. He's very accessible again. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be very productive because he's so intense in those hours, he gets a lot more done per hour of work than if he had sort of sprinkled those throughout his normal schedule. Yeah. Yeah. then you have the rhythmic philosophy, which is where you say, I put aside some set times uh, for doing deep work each week, and I just always do that time every week. I don't even have to think about it. Mm. So, you know, I profiled someone, for example, who was working on their dissertation, but then got a job. So they had to write their dissertation. So what they did is they put aside two hours from 5 to 7 a.m. every morning. And it was just every weekday, 5 to 7 a.m., I'm working deeply on my dissertation and his productivity just skyrocketed because he knew that that was deep work time. So, you know, it could be, uh, every Monday and Friday I worked a half day doing deep work or, or every day from nine to 10, but just something that's regular. You never have to think about it. That's the rhythmic philosophy. Right. And the final is the journalistic, which is where you sort of just look at your week ahead and say, where's there room in here for deep work? And then you sort of block it off and protect it. So each week might look different from, the week before it and the week that comes after. So you're, you're, you're sort of taking the, the challenges as they come and say, here's what I'm going to do deep work this week. You sort of mm-hmm. carve out your carve out time where you see opportunities. Okay. But it seems like with both rhythmic and journalistic, there's an emphasis on scheduling it ahead of time though. Yes. You can never, 
you can never trust yourself to get any sort of appreciable amount of deep work done if you don't have a scheduling routine. You have to have a scheduling routine. Uh, it's just very rare for a knowledge worker or student to ever just at some point in their day say, I don't have much to do and I'm really in the mood to focus hard. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're waiting for that to happen, you're not going to get a lot of deep work done. So you, you mm. do absolutely have to have a scheduling uh, philosophy you use, some sort of routine for how deep work gets scheduled uh, that you're committed to. And you have a lot of flexibility about which routine works best for you. But yeah, don't don't just hope when you get to a day that like maybe I should put aside some deep work to do now. That That's not very successful. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I just put out a video about how I use my calendar and I was saying, oh, you know, when I was a student, my calendar was full of classes and work. And now it only has appointments and travel <laughs> dates and every yes. other, otherwise it's completely empty. And uh, the way I've been running my business is I just wake up and I kind of have like this rough structure of Monday and Tuesday writing days, you know, Wednesdays filming and editing, that kind of thing. But I haven't been scheduling like, okay, you know, 7 a.m. to 12, I'm going to go write from these hours. And I think uh, my calendar is going to get a big change following this yeah. conversation. And then that video will be sort of obsolete. <laughs> yeah. I may need to change rules. the article having rules in advance like that, like, well, no, I'm always doing deep work like nine to 12 on Monday and Tuesday mornings. Mm -hmm. And one of the advantage of that is then you protect that time. So when a reasonable opportunity comes along that would end up eating up that time, you say, Oh no, that's taken. Mm -hmm. And, and it stays. So I, I have this certainly, um, I like to have one or two almost completely protected days in my calendar per week, uh, per week. Yeah. Days where I have nothing scheduled that requires a lot of, um, protection in advance. That would never happen naturally because there's just a constant influx of, of uh, potential appointment routines and travel that come across my plate. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why I'm a big fan for especially people in your situation who, who are running their own business of these scheduling tools like schedule once or book my time where if someone mm -hmm. says, Hey, can we have a meeting? Can we do a podcast? Can we do whatever? And you say, uh, yeah, click on this page and I'll show you all my, all my times available and you choose one that works for you and it's automatically scheduled. The advantage of those tools is it actually allows you to start crafting your schedule and your time in advance. Because when you select mm -hmm. what, when am I available for meetings, appointments or what have you, you're also selecting implicitly, when am I not? Right. And now suddenly you have control over your time and attention and no one minds because when some, when you tell someone, Hey, go to my schedule once page and choose any time that works for you. Um, they just are going to say, yeah, you look at all these times. I'll choose one that works for me. They don't notice, like, why didn't you have any times available on Monday? You know, you bastard, why Why are you not available? <laughs> they say there's plenty of times. Uh, but I was doing an interview recently with someone else who runs a, um, a web-based media business, mm -hmm. different than the email guy. And he's pushed this to this great extreme, which I love. He'll have, like, three appointments a month. Yeah. <laughs> like, this guy is full deep work, but he says people still don't really notice. He's like, Yeah, sure, I'll meet you. I'll, I'll have a call with you or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he sends them to a schedule once page, and there's only like three three hours available per month. And people just, All right, I'll meet with you in a few months or something. And he just has massive amounts of, of unbroken time, and he's incredibly productive. So, uh, I love this notion that by controlling your time in advance, you're still able to meet with people. You're still able to do interesting opportunities. You're still able to record podcast interviews, but you still have massive control of your schedule and lots of unbroken time for deep work. Yeah. I do this to an extent. Um, I use a tool called Calendly, which is probably very similar. Yeah. I like that one too. Yeah. And uh, I just have like, it's, I only have Thursdays and Fridays available for podcasts now. Yeah. And yeah. I remember when I went to, I went to this con this conference a couple of years ago called podcast movement. 
And I don't know if it was the same person, but I talked to a guy there who was like, yeah, we have one day a month for interviews. And um, I did that for a while. And I don't know, I guess there's like a little bit of this imposter syndrome where it's like, oh, I'm the one coming to the guest asking if they'd like to be on my show. So then if I send them this link with only one day per month open, like I'm going to seem ridiculously pompous or something. Yeah, but people don't people don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. In other words, like they don't people don't notice the time that's not available. Whereas if we're just having Mm -hmm. a conversation and I was like, all right, well, how about we do it on Wednesday? And you say, I don't I don't do podcasts on Wednesday. I want to think. I said, well, what if we do it on Thursdays? I don't do podcasts on Thursdays. I want to think. Then it it seems like, well, you know, wait a second. Why is your time worth more than mine? But if instead you're showing me a positive list of here's all these times and dates I'm available, Mm. it comes across as positive. You don't notice the times that aren't on the list. You just say, okay, here's a bunch of times. Uh, which one works for me. And maybe it's a few months in the future. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like, so there's something about the, the Calendly schedule once interface. That's really good for protecting deep work mm-hmm. because people, uh, they don't take it as a negative that you don't have certain times on there. They just take it as, okay, here's positively all these different times and I get to choose which time works best for me. So it's actually to my advantage. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I think I have some changes to make. <laughs> specifically with my email and then I, I think I've got the Calendly thing on lock for now. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. But I may even start further reducing the <laughs> amount of days I have open for podcasts. I know one thing that um, me and then Andrew, my co-host at Listen Money Matters, have been really focusing on doing is batching episode recording days, Yep. which will give me more um, more deep work time. And I think I may even be able to go to a bimodal schedule once I get ahead on content. That'd be great. Bimodal schedules are great. Like if you could actually, what you could do, so I'm going to advocate it just because I'm jealous, but you could do uh, two day stretches on a weekly basis, probably. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you had to, you could probably say like Monday, Tuesdays, I'm unreachable. And I just have a small number of things I do really well on those days. Like that's the type of freedom that you probably have is running your own business. Yeah. Uh, And I could tell you, it's like a, it's a, a productivity boom because after the first hour of that two day period, all of the attention residue is cleared out of your head. All of it, and the, your your brain after that first hour gets up to this really high state of performance. And as the time goes on, you're just able to, you have deeper insights, you're more creative, you produce better writing. It's just, it's like you're on some sort of performance enhancing drug. At least as the people who do do bimodal work really report this, is that you, you get into this groove where you're just like an incredible value producing productivity machine. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast called uh, Cortex. And one of the hosts who's a YouTuber, he said that he just sometimes goes to Amsterdam and just holds up in this hotel for like a week straight Yep. just to work. Yep. Doesn't even do the touristy things. He just holds up in Amsterdam, one hotel. <laughs> yep. I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm saying if you've, if you've checked even for a second email or Facebook in the last 20 minutes, the type of work you're doing at that moment is just a completely different flavor than if you'd been going hours or days without checking those things. It's just a different mm. type of, of mind space that people have forgotten what it feels like. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's the big takeaway from this episode and probably from your book is uh, this is not just something you can fall into. You know, you can start doing, this is actually a, a mind structure that you're not used to and you may not even have the neural programming currently to do. Yep. Yep. But if you train it, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly powerful skill. It's like the killer app in a knowledge economy. So uh, I present the whole thing. The, the thesis here is it's an economic opportunity that I, I'm, I'm not trying to say distractions are bad because the things that distract us 
aren't intrinsically bad. They have plenty of things that are valuable about them. Mm-hmm. It's just that the value of their opposite, the value of what happens if you really train and support your ability to concentrate intensely is being overlooked. And that this is an economic opportunity because this ability to do deep work is becoming more valuable at exactly the same time that it's becoming more rare, which right. is a classic case of economic scarcity. So if you're one of the few who cultivates this ability, it's a chance to really stand out. I like that a lot. What is the value of the opposite of any opportunity? Yes. Awesome. Yes. So Cal, usually I ask guests, you know, where can people find you, reach you, that kind of thing. I know you don't have many of those places. <laughs> well, uh, calnewport.com, I have a blog, so you, mm-hmm. can, you can read about a lot of these ideas and, and find out more about the books and such. Yeah. And then uh, Deep Work Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World is your new book. And yep. um, that may end up on my book list very soon. I know I've got So Good They Can't Ignore You like right near the top because I think it's like required reading for most students. Like Much like most of your books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what I always tell people. <laughs> <laughs> what book should I read? All, all my books. Just all my books. Yeah. <laughs> my all books right. in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Cal. Well, thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Thomas. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully you found it enjoyable. And if you want to get the show notes, once again, CIGpodcast.com is that URL you should point your browser to. Find the episode 100 link on the page and you'll find all the links to the things we talked about in the episode. And you can also check out Cal's book if you want. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.